Welcome to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. I am your host, A, and this is a podcast about the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice. You might hear a color commentator in the background, and that is little A, my cat, and she loves to provide a little color commentary here and there. I hope you enjoy. You are listening to part two of evangelical history from the 20th century, and this is going to be the last episode of the first season, just talking about the history of evangelicalism. Um, Just to reframe here, the reason why I decided to talk about the history of evangelicalism is for us to understand where evangelicalism is today and why people are leaving. We need to know about the history. If you are raised by evangelical parents or grandparents, this episode might sound pretty familiar to you because this history is passed down from generation to generation if you came from a family that was evangelical. I know that not all exvangelicals or evangelicals come from families who had evangelicalism in it. However, whenever you're pretty deep in it. A lot of times there is a family background of evangelicalism. So to get started here, um, now the last episode, I was talking a lot about how it seemed like evangelicalism was on the rocks. Well, World War II comes around and there's actually a resurgence of evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. So there was a lot of propaganda And as part of this propaganda, they decided to use religion as part of the propaganda and evangelical rhetoric. So evangelical rhetoric could be used anywhere from the posters to pamphlets to also hymns that were sung to um, in, in this effort to boost morale of Americans and policymakers began to emphasize religion as a way of political dominance. So I just wanted to read this here. There was a National Association of Evangelicals, and this man's name was um, William Ayer. He was a pastor who spoke at this association meeting. And he was a pastor of a prominent Manhattan church. And he was calling for conservative Christians to unite. Now, here's what he said. It is not boasting to declare that evangelical Christianity has America of our forefathers to say. He declared in the midst of World War II that millions of evangelical Christians, if they had a common voice and a common meeting place, would exercise under God an influence that would save American democracy. So this is one of these forerunners for really modern day evangelicalism that became essentially known as Christian nationalism. And these words serve as a platform that keeps Christian nationalism going somewhat strong today amongst white evangelicals. Okay, so if we're looking at history here, there was World War One. Then after World War One, there was, you know, this boom of the economy. And then 
there was the Great Depression. So after World War II, there was this concern about, you know, even further loss of population because of World War II and how that might affect the economy. So then this American dream idea was really pushed. And that was to have a male and a female get married, have two and a half kids, have a mortgage with a white picket fence, and yada, yada, yada. So that was what became the white American dream. And to be able to stimulate this dream idea even more and further, then they also started pushing homophobic rhetoric. Now, homophobia is something that homophobia and transphobia are very common in the white evangelical church. And interestingly enough, the word homosexual was not even in the Bible before 1946 and World War II ended in 1945. So I want to read you two versions of the verse 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And here's the version before 1946. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Da, 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 da. Now, here's a version after 1946. Or do you now know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And this is both the King James version of the Bible, the one that I mentioned all the way back in the 1600s. So they inserted the word homosexual after 1946. They said, oh, you know, oops, after 300 years, we must have uh, translated it wrong. No, it was just a result of propaganda. So the origin of the word that they decided to change, um, I can spell it here for you uh, if you'd like to look it up because I have difficulties pronouncing it because I do not speak Greek. It's spelled A-R-S-E-N-O-I-K-O-T-A-I. And this word is still up for debate. So basically, translators are believing now that this word refers to sexual exploitation by those in power. So this could be sexual exploitation due to either um, positions. So having, um, because back in the day, whenever this was written, slavery was legal. So having a master sexually exploit their slave or um, having a grown adult sexually exploit a child. So this is what um, is up for debate right now um, amongst theological scholars trying to decipher and discern what this word means. Um, now, conversion therapy was also being pushed a lot. 
And conversion therapy, though, started in 1899. Um, it didn't gain traction until the 1900s more. Um, so conversion therapy, where it has its roots in, is actually hypnosis, which I think is very interesting because um, it seems like with hypnosis that a lot of the principles of hypnosis can actually be found in um, cult-like behaviors and people being in high control religions and why a person um, starts having their thought processes changed due to high control religions. And so hypnotic practices are essentially still used in conversion therapy today. Um, So although conversion therapy is not supported by American Psychological Association or other um, counseling associations or psychological associations, unfortunately, it is still in practice today. So the Cold War began basically as soon as World War II ended. And evangelicals explain this way through eschatology, which is the theology of end times and revelation. And during this time, I mean, people were confused. They were scared. They were frightened and they were looking for answers. And so here were white evangelicals saying, look here, we have the answers. And the white evangelicals were very focused on what was going on internationally and yet neglecting what was going on in the U.S. and even, um, you know, contributing to injustices towards BIPOC, LGBTQ, women. And they were not responding in ways that would have been supportive, that would have been loving and caring, and these different ideals that um, that the white evangelicals said that Jesus represented, and, and yet they were not showing it on U.S. soil. So because of this, it just continued to further segregate the church, and the church was already segregated because of the Jim Crow laws, and the Jim Crow laws were not repealed until 1964, and yet the church, the evangelical church today still remains vastly segregated. And um, and a lot of this has to do with the history of it and white evangelicals not being supportive of civil liberties. So during this Cold War era, Um, different politicians like Truman, Eisenhower, Reagan, they're really pushing this propaganda and this rhetoric of good versus evil, evil empire, good empire. And, um, and, and this was really supporting the evangelical movement and what they were talking about in their political speeches would then just get taken and transferred up to major platforms of big evangelists like Billy Graham and um, Reagan, amongst other Republican politicians, would even go and speak at the National Association of Evangelicals. And Reagan said in a speech that he delivered at this National Associate, this National Association of Evangelicals, he characterized the Soviet Union as an evil empire and as a 
evil of focus in the modern world. And so, you know, it, white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism just become further and further intertwined because of what is happening on the dialogue of the political stage as well as the church stage. Then there came the satanic panic. And satanic panic really gained traction in the 1980s. And this started as a result of this book called Michelle Remembers by Dr. Lawrence Pazder. So yeah, so this book was published in 1980 about Michelle Smith, Dr. Pazder's psychiatry patient, who later became his wife. So apparently he said that he helped Michelle regain some memories that she had as a child about being ritualistically abused in a satanic cult. Now, okay, there are some different things to unpack here. First, you know, I I don't know if this is true or not true about Michelle's experience. However, if we're looking at ethics here, a psychiatrist should never marry a former patient. And according to most state guidelines, a person who is a patient of a provider should not even be having um, contact that is non-professional until seven years after this uh, professional relationship has ended. So I wasn't able to find, you know, when Michelle stopped being his patient and whenever the relationship began. But from what I'm seeing here, there is some abuse of power here, which causes some questioning if what he wrote was indeed true or if he was trying to make a name for himself. Um, as this shows some signs of abuse of power. And whenever researchers are looking further back on this, they're not really seeing evidence for what Dr. Pazder said to be true. Because as other mental health professionals look back at this, they're like, well, this is very peculiar that he married this patient, that he capitalized a book off of her experience. However, the evangelical church decided to take this story and run with it. And it was fueled by conservative media and evangelical media and these mainstream evangelical preachers. And this led to this revival during the 1980s as a lot of people were afraid um, of their children becoming involved in some satanic cult and they started believing that even if their children participated in Halloween, that this would be grooming their children for abuse. So then evangelical parents started banning their children from participating in Halloween or in any kind of um, activities that were related to what they considered to be quote unquote dark magic or quote unquote black magic. So 
I mean, I come from the Harry Potter generation and I was not allowed to read or watch Harry Potter. I wasn't allowed to do Halloween. And so it wasn't until I was an adult where I started exploring this stuff for the first time. And um, a lot of kids who grew up in evangelicalism from what I've heard had also similar experience of this. The last major historical event that I wanted to mention before the year 2000 was the AIDS crisis and how that contributed to the purity culture movement. So the purity culture really developed as a result of the AIDS crisis and a lot of misinformation getting pushed, not just by evangelicals, but by other media sources and outlets about STIs. And this led to a lot of fear-based precautions and behaviors such as really pushing for abstinence. And then there was this huge conference that started called True Love Waits beginning in 1993, encouraging kids to commit to an abstinence pledge. And a lot of these practices that happened with True Love Waits were mimicked in youth groups across the country and it created a lot of shame for kids and again just spreading a lot of misinformation Um, and whenever they talked about sex typically they were talking about penis and vagina sex so they were not talking about other forms of sex so Because of that, within the evangelical movement and people promising to abstain from sex, they would end up having other forms of sex because they didn't consider it to be sex because they were getting their sex education from evangelicalism. So then they weren't taking proper precautions in having oral sex or anal sex, and which ends up putting, you know, these kids at risk for developing STIs because, again, this misinformation. So, you know, even what they were trying to do and providing this purity culture education, it wasn't um, necessarily effective in reaching their cause and their mission for the youth. So um, during this whole movement, there were these things called purity rings that were placed on the wedding ring finger of mostly girls, then boys uh, at the time, and were given to them by a youth group leader or by their father as basically saying, you're my property, I own you until your husband owns you one day. And it seemed almost like this kind of um, a cattle drive for young women. And they would have purity pledge cards and just writing, I promise to not have sex until I'm married and signing it as though it's some sort of a, a legal document so that people would feel like they were breaking this intense promise and, and feeling guilt and shame if they had sex outside of marriage. And then in addition to this, um, there were something called purity balls. And these would be like these banquets and, um, and then these 
girls would be escorted by their fathers and just showing again that they were a piece of property to their father. And so it became this very um, objectifying system that became a very fundamental structure to uphold evangelicalism. Then there was this book that was printed in 1997 that's no longer in circulation called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And this took purity culture a step further saying, if you hold hands, that is one step closer to kissing. If you kiss, then that's one step closer to having sex. And then if you have sex or if you fall in love with someone who is not going to be your spouse, then you give a piece of your heart away. And then if you keep doing this and dating people, eventually you're going to have no heart left. And I mean, this is very, very harmful rhetoric that again was just regurgitated throughout youth groups across the country, leading to, you know, people developing um, STIs themselves because they did not get the appropriate sexual education. It was leading to, you know, a lot of shame and guilt. Um, It was leading to sexual dysfunction. Also, very early marriages that would end in divorce, not all the time, but there's a higher rate of divorce amongst people who got married and were evangelicals. So there's all these different layers that come with purity culture that still have a lot of influences today. And purity culture is still something that is talked a lot about, even though that the stigma of STIs has decreased considerably. So lastly, as part of this purity culture, they gave the sexual prosperity gospel that if you waited to have sex until you were married, that you would have like the most mind-blowing sex and that you would have a very healthy sex life and would be very happy and would be very satisfied. However, this led to a great disappointment because what happens is You know, if you're taught to be ashamed of something repeatedly, your brain isn't just going to turn that off just magically. Your brain is going to keep going to that place of shame, Um, even though that, you know, it's within the confines of marriage, which is considered to be acceptable in those evangelical circles. So again, just these lingering effects. So this is all these main points of evangelicalism and and these historical events that still have echoes today or still have very strong presences in evangelicalism. And we are going to dive more into how to deconstruct these psychological processes in the upcoming season. So I hope that you enjoyed this first season and learned a lot about evangelicalism and why it operates today and why it operates like it does. All right. I hope you have a good Sunday. Mm-hmm.